0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 2, The 10,000 Hour Rule. Section 1. The University of Michigan opened its new computer center in 1971 in a brand new building on Beale Avenue in Ann Arbor with beige brick exterior walls and a dark glass front. The university's enormous mainframe computers stood in the middle of a vast white room, looking, as one faculty member remembers, like one of the last scenes in the 2001 movie or in the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. Off to the side were dozens of key punch machines, what passed in those days for computer terminals. In 1971, this was state of the art. The University of Michigan had one of the most advanced computer science programs in the world, and over the course of the computer center's life, thousands of students passed through that white room, the most famous of whom was a gawky teenager named Bill Joy. Joy came to the University of Michigan the year the computer center opened. He was 16. He was tall and very thin, with a mop of unruly hair. He had been voted most studious student by his graduating class at North Farmington High School outside Detroit, which, as he puts it, meant that he was a no-date nerd. He had thought he might end up as a biologist or a mathematician. But late in his freshman year, he stumbled across the computer center and was hooked. From that point on, the computer center was his life. He programmed whenever he could. Joy got a job with a computer science professor so he could program over the summer. In 1975, he enrolled in graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley. There, he buried himself even deeper in the world of computer software. During the oral exams for his PhD, he made up a particularly complicated algorithm on the fly that, as one of his many admirers has written, quote, so stunned his examiners that one of them later compared the experience to Jesus confounding his elders, end quote. Working in collaboration with a small group of programmers, Joy took on the task of rewriting Unix, which was the software system developed by AT&T for mainframe computers. Joy's version was very good. It was so good, in fact, that it became, and remains, the operating system on which literally millions of computers around the world run. Quote, If you put your Mac in that funny mode where you can see the code, Joy says, I see things that I remember typing in 25 years ago. End quote. And do you know who wrote much of the software that allows you to access the internet? Bill Joy. After graduating from Berkeley, Joy confounded the Silicon Valley firm Sun Microsystems, which was one of the most critical players in the computer revolution. There, he rewrote another computer language, Java, and his legend grew still further. Among Silicon Valley insiders, Joy is spoken of with as much awe as someone like Bill Gates of Microsoft. He is sometimes called the Edison of the internet. As the Yale computer scientist David Gellernter mm, says, "...Bill Joy is one of the most influential people in the modern history of computing." The story of Bill Joy's genius has been told many times, and the lesson is always the same. Here was a world that was the purest of meritocracies. Computer programming didn't operate as an old-boy network, where you got ahead because of money or connections. It was a wide open field in which all participants were judged solely on their talent and their accomplishments. It was a world where the best men won, and Joy was clearly one of those best men. It would be easier to accept that version of events, however, if we hadn't just looked at hockey and soccer players. Theirs was supposed to be a pure meritocracy as well, only it wasn't. It was a story of how outliers in a particular field reach their lofty status through a combination of ability, opportunity, and utterly arbitrary advantage. Is it possible that the same pattern of special opportunities operate in the real world as well? Let's go back over the story of Bill Joy and find out. Section 2. For almost a generation, Psychologists around the world have been engaged in a spirited debate over a question that most of us would consider to have settled years ago. The obvious question is this, is there such a thing as innate talent? The obvious answer is yes. Not every hockey player born in January ends up playing at the professional level. Only some do, those innately talented ones. Achievement is talent plus preparation. The problem with this view is that the closer psychologists look at the careers of the gifted, the smaller the role innate talent seems to play and the bigger the role preparation seems to play. Exhibit A in the talent argument is a study done in the early 1990s by the psychologist K. Anders Erikson and two colleagues at Berlin's elite academy of music. With the help of the academy's professors, they divided the school's violinists into three groups. In the first group were the stars, the students with the potential to become world-class soloists. In the second group were those judged to be merely good. In the third group were students who were unlikely to ever play professionally and who intended to be music teachers in the public school system. All of the universities were then asked the same question. Over the course of your entire career, ever since you first picked up the violin, how many hours have you practiced? Everyone from all three groups started playing at roughly the same age, around five years old. In those first few years, everyone practiced roughly the same amount, about two or three hours a week. But when the students were around the age of eight, real differences started to emerge. The students who would end up the best in their class began to practice more than everyone else, six hours a week by age nine, eight hours a week by age 12, 16 hours a week by age 14, and up and up, until by the age of 20, they were practicing, that is, purposefully and single-mindedly playing their instruments with the intent to get better, well over 30 hours a week. In fact, by the age of 20, elite the elite performers had each totaled 10,000 hours of practice. By contrast, the merely good students had totaled 8,000 hours, and the future music teachers had totaled just over 4,000. Erickson and his colleagues then compared amateur pianists with professional pianists. The same pattern emerged. The amateurs never practiced about more than three hours a week over the course of their childhood, and by the age of 20, they had totaled 2,000 hours of practice. The professionals, on the other hand, steadily increased their practice time every year until by the age of 20, they, like the violinists, had reached 10,000 hours. The striking thing about Erickson's study is that he and his colleagues couldn't find any naturals, musicians who floated effortlessly to the top while practicing a fraction of the time which their peers did. Nor could they find any grinds, or people who worked harder than everyone else, yet just didn't have what it takes to break the top ranks. The researchers suggest that once a musician has enough ability to get into a top music school. The one thing that distinguishes one performer from another is how hard he or she works. That's it. And what's more, the people at the very top don't work just harder, or even much harder than everyone else, they work much, much harder. The idea that excellence at performing a complex tasks requires a critical minimum level of practice surfaces again and again in studies of expertise. In fact, researchers have settled on what they believe is the magic number for true expertise, 10,000 hours. The emerging picture from such studies is that 10,000 hours of practice is required to achieve the level of mastery associated with being a world-class expert in anything. A quote from the neurologist Daniel Levitin. Quote, in study after study of composers, basketball players, fiction writers, ice skaters, concert pianists, chess players, master criminals, and what have you, this number comes up again and again. Of course, this doesn't address why some people get more out of their practice sessions than others do, but no one has yet found a case in which true world-class experience was accomplished in less time. It seems that it takes the brain this long to assimilate all that it needs to know to achieve true mastery. This is true even of people we think as prodigies. Mozart, for example, famously started writing music at six. But, writes the psychologist Michael Howe in his book Genius Explained, quote, By the standards of mature composers, Mozart's early works were not outstanding. The earliest pieces were all probably written down by his father, and perhaps improved in the process. Many of Wolfgang's childhood compositions, such as the first seven of his concertos for piano and orchestra, are largely just arrangements of works by other composers. Of these concertos that only certain music original to Mozart, the earliest that is now regarded as a masterwork, number 9, Concerto 271, was not composed until he was 21, by that time, Mozart had already been composing concertos for 10 years." Quote. The musical critic, Harold Schoenberg, goes further. Mozart, he argues, actually developed late, since he didn't produce his greatest work until he had been composing for more than 20 years. To become a grandmaster in chess also seems to take about 10 years. Only the legendary Bobby Fischer got to that elite level in less than that that amount of time. It took him nine years. In what's 10 years? Well, it's roughly how long it takes to put in 10,000 hours of hard practice. 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. Here is the explanation for what was so puzzling about the rosters of the Czech and Canadian national sports teams. There was practically no one on those teams born after September 1st, which doesn't seem to make any sense. You'd think that there should be a fair number of Czech hockey or soccer prodigies born late in the year who are so talented that they eventually make their way into the top tier as young adults, despite their birth date. But to Ericsson and those who argue against the primacy of talent, that is not surprising at all. That late-born prodigy doesn't get chosen for the All-Star team as an 8-year-old because he's too small so he doesn't get the extra practice. And without the extra practice, he has no chance at hitting 10,000 hours by the time the professional hockey teams start looking for players. And without 10,000 hours under his belt, there is no way he can ever master the skills necessary to play at the top level. Even Mozart, the greatest musical prodigy of all time, could not hit his stride until he had his 10,000 hours in. Practice isn't the thing that you do once and you're good. It's the thing that you do that makes you good. The other interesting thing about that 10,000 hours, of course, is that 10,000 hours is an enormous amount of time. It's all but impossible to reach that number all by yourself by the time you are a young adult. You have to have parents who encourage and support you. You really can't be poor because if you have to hold down a part-time job on the side to make ends meet, there won't be enough time left in the day to practice. In fact, most people can reach that number only if they get into some kind of special program, like a hockey all-star squad, or if they get some kind of extraordinary opportunity that gives them a chance to put in those hours. Section 3. So, back to Bill Joy. It's 1971. He's tall and gawky and 16 years old. He is the math whiz, the kind of student that schools like MIT and Caltech and the University of Waterloo attract by the hundreds. Quote, when Bill was a little kid, he wanted to know everything about everything way before he should have even known what he wanted to know. His father, William, says, we answered him when we could. And when we couldn't, we would just give him a book. End quote. When it came time to apply to college, Joy got a perfect score on the math portion of the Scholastic Aptitude Test. He says, matter-of-factly, it wasn't particularly hard. There was actually plenty of time to check it twice. He has talent by the truckload, but that's not the only consideration, and it never is. The key to his development is that he stumbled across that nondescript building on Beale Avenue. In the early 1970s, when Joy was learning about programming, computers were the size of rooms. A single machine, which might have less power and memory than your microwave today has, could cost upwards of a million dollars, and that's in 1970s dollars. Computers were rare. If you found one, it was hard to get access. If you managed to get access, renting time on it cost a fortune. What's more, programming itself was extraordinarily tedious. This was the era when computer programs were created using cardboard punch cards. Each line of code was imprinted on the card using a key punch machine. A complex program might include hundreds if not thousands of these cards in tall stacks. Once a program was ready, you walked over to whatever mainframe computer you had access to and gave the stack of cards to an operator. Since computers could handle only one task at a time, the operator made an appointment for your program And depending on how many people were ahead of you in line, you might not get your cards back for a few hours or even a day. And if you made even a single error, even a typographical error in your program, you had to take the cards back, track down the error, and begin the whole process again. Under those circumstances, it was exceedingly difficult for anyone to become a programming expert. Certainly, becoming an expert by your early 20s was all but impossible. When you can program for only a few minutes out of every hour you spend in the computer room, how can you ever get in 10,000 hours of practice? One computer scientist from that era remembers, quote, programming with cards did not teach you programming. It taught you patience and proofreading, end quote. It wasn't until the mid-1960s that a solution to the programming problem came to mind. Computers were finally powerful enough that they could handle more than one appointment at once. If the computer's operating system was rewritten, computer scientists realized, the machine's time could be shared. The computer could be trained to handle hundreds of tasks at the time. That, in turn, meant that programmers didn't have to physically hand their stacks of computer cards to the operator anymore. Dozens of terminals could be built, all linked to the mainframe by a telephone line, and everyone could be working... Online, all at once. Here is how one history of the period describes the advent of time sharing. Quote This was not just a revolution, it was a revelation. Forget the operator, the deck, the card decks, and the wait. With time sharing, you could sit at your teletype, bang in a couple of commands, and get an answer then and there. Time sharing was interactive. A program could ask for a response, wait for you to type it in. Act on it while you waited, and show you the result, all in real time. End quote. This is where Michigan came in, because Michigan was one of the first universities in the world to switch over to time-sharing. By 1967, a prototype of the system was up and running. By the early 1970s, Michigan had enough computing power that 100 people could be programming simultaneously in the computer center, In the late 60s, early 70s, I don't think there was any place else that was exactly like Michigan," says Mike Alexander, one of the pioneers of Michigan's computer system. Maybe MIT, maybe Carnegie Mellon, maybe Dartmouth, but I don't think there were any others. This was the opportunity that greeted Bill Joy when he arrived on the Ann Arbor campus in the fall of 1971. He hadn't even chosen Michigan because of its computers. He had never done anything with computers in high school. He was interested in math and engineering. But when the programming bug hit him in his freshman year, he found himself, by the happiest of accidents, in one of the few places in the world where a 17-year-old could program all he wanted. Quote, Do you know what the difference is between the computing cards and time sharing? Joy asked. It's the difference between playing chess by mail and speed chess. End quote. Programming wasn't an exercise in frustration anymore. It was fun. Joy went on, quote, "'I lived in the North Campus, and the Computer Center was in the North Campus. How much time did I spend there? Oh, a phenomenal amount of time. It was open 24 hours. I would stay there all night and just walk home in the morning. In an average week in those years, I was spending more time in the Computer Center than on my classes.' All of us down there had this recurring nightmare of forgetting to show up for class at all, not even realizing we were enrolled, end quote. Or sorry, he continues. The challenge was that they gave all the students on an account with a fixed amount of money, so your time would run out. When you signed on, you would put in how long you wanted to spend on the computer. They gave you like an hour of time, and that's all you'd get. But someone figured out that if you put in time equals and then a letter like T equals K, they wouldn't charge you. It was a bug in the software. You could just put in T equals K and sit there forever, he said laughing at the memory and ending the quote. Just look at the stream of opportunities that came Bill Joy's way. Because he happened to go to a farsighted school like the University of Michigan, he was able to practice on a time-sharing system instead of with punch cards. Because the Michigan system happened to have a bug in it, he could program all he wanted. Because the university was willing to spend the money to keep the computer center open for 24 hours, he could stay up all night. And because he was able to put in so many hours, by the time he happened to be presented with the opportunity to rewrite Unix, He was up to the task. Bill Joy was brilliant. He wanted to learn, and that was a big part of it. But before he could become an expert, somebody had to give him the opportunity to learn how to be an expert. Another quote by Bill, at Michigan, I was probably programming 8 or 10 hours a day. By the time I was at Berkeley, I was doing it day and night. I had a terminal at home. I'd stay up until two or three in the morning sometimes, watching old movies and programming. Sometimes I'd fall asleep at the keyboard. And you know how the key repeats until the end and it starts to go beep, beep, beep? After that happens three times, you have to go to bed. I was still relatively incompetent even when I got to Berkeley. I was proficient by my second year there. That's when I wrote programs that are still in use today, 30 years later. He paused for a moment to do the math in his head which for someone like Bill Joy doesn't take very long. Michigan in 1971, programming in earnest by sophomore year, add in the summers, then the days and nights in his first year at Berkeley. He said finally, so maybe 10,000 hours. Yeah, that's about right. End quote. Section four. Is the 10,000 hour rule a general rule of success? If we scratch below the surface of every great achiever, do we always find the equivalent of the Michigan Computer Center or the Hockey All-Star Team, some sort of special opportunity for practice? Let's test the idea with two examples, and for the sake of simplicity, let's make them as familiar as possible. First, The Beatles, one of the most famous rock bands ever. And second, Bill Gates, one of the world's richest men. The Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr came to the United States in February of 1964, starting the so-called British invasion of the American music scene and putting out a string of hit records that transformed the face of popular music. The first interesting thing about the Beatles, for our purposes, is how long they had already been together by the time they reached the United States. Lennon and McCartney first started playing together in 1957, seven years prior to landing in America. Incidentally, the time that elapsed between their founding and their arguably greatest artistic achievements, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and The Beatles' White Album, is 10 years. If you look even more closely at those long years of preparation, you'll find an experience that, in the context of hockey players in Bill Joy and world-class violinists, sounds, again, awfully familiar. In 1960, they were still just a struggling high school rock band, and they were invited to play in Hamburg, Germany. Quote, Hamburg in those days did not have rock and roll music clubs, it had strip clubs, says Philip Norman, who wrote the Beatles' biography, Shout. There was one particular club owner called Bruno, who was originally a fairground showman. He had the idea of bringing in rock groups to play in various clubs. They had this formula. It was a huge non-stop show, hour after hour, with a lot of people lurching in and the other lot lurching out. And the band would play all the time to catch the passing traffic. In an American red light district, they would call it non-stop strip Many, Quote from Norman, Many of the bands that played in Hamburg were from Liverpool. It was an accident. Bruno went to London to look for bands but he happened to meet an entrepreneur from Liverpool in Soho who was down in London by pure chance. And he arranged to send some bands over. That's how the connection was established. And eventually, the Beatles made a connection not just with Bruno, but with other club owners as well. They kept going back because they got a lot of alcohol and a lot of sex. End quote. And what was so special about Hamburg? It wasn't that it paid well. It really didn't. It wasn't that the acoustics were were fantastic because they weren't. It wasn't that the audiences were savvy and appreciative, appreciative because they were anything but. But it was the sheer amount of time the band was forced to play. Here is John Lennon in an interview after the Beatles disbanded talking about the band's performances at a Hamburg strip club called the Indra. Quote, We got better and more confidence. We couldn't help it with all the experience playing all night long. It was handy with them being foreign. We had to try even harder, put our heart and soul into it to get ourselves over. In Liverpool, we'd only ever done one-hour sessions, and we just used to do our best numbers, the same ones, at every one. In Hamburg, we had to play for eight hours straight, so we really had to find a new way of playing, end quote. Eight hours? Here's another quote from Pete Best, the Beatles' drummer at the time. Quote, "Once the news got out about that we were making a show, the, st- the club started packing them in. We played 7 nights a week. At first we played almost non-stop till 12:30 when it closed, but as we got better the crowd stayed till 2 in the morning." End quote. 7 days a week. The Beatles ended up traveling to Hamburg 5 times between 1960 and the end of 1962. On the first trip, they played 106 nights, five or more hours a night. On their second trip, they played 92 times. On their third trip, they played 48 times, for a total of 172 hours on stage. The last two Hamburg gigs, in November and December of 1962, involved another 90 hours of performing. All told, they performed for 270 nights, in just over a year and a half. By the time they had their first burst of success in 1964, in fact, they had performed live an estimated 1,200 times. Do you know how extraordinary that is? Most bands today don't perform 1,200 times in their entire careers. The Hamburg Crucible is one of the many things that set the Beatles apart. Quote, They were no good on stage when they went there, and they were very good when they came back, Norman continues. They learned not only stamina, they had to learn an enormous amount of numbers, cover versions of everything you can think of, not just rock and roll, but a bit of jazz, too. They weren't disciplined on stage at all before that, but when they came back, they sounded like no one else. It was the making of them, end quote. Section 5. Let's now turn to the history of Bill Gates. His story is almost as well known as the Beatles. Brilliant young math whiz discovers computer programming, drops out of Harvard, starts a little computer company called Microsoft with his friends. Through sheer brilliance and ambition and guts, builds it into the giant of the software world. That's the broad outline. Now let's dig a little bit deeper. Gates's father was a wealthy lawyer in Seattle and his mother, the daughter of a well-to-do banker. As a child, Bill was precocious and easily bored by his studies. So, his parents took him out of public school, and at the beginning of seventh grade, sent him to Lakeside, a private school that catered to Seattle's elite families. Midway through Gates' second year at Lakeside, the school started a computer club. Gates remembers, quote, The mothers' club at school did a rummage sale every year, and there was always the question of what the money would go to. Some went to the summer programs, where inner-city where inner- kids would come up to the campus. Some of it would go to the teachers. That year, they put $3,000 into a computer terminal down in this funny little room that we subsequently took control of. It was kind of an amazing thing. End quote. It was an amazing thing, of course, because this was 1968. Most colleges didn't have computer clubs in the 1960s. Even more remarkable was the kind of computer Lakeside bought. The school didn't have its students learn programming by the laborious computer card system, like virtually everyone else was doing in the 60s. Instead, Lakeside installed what was called an ASR33 teletype, which was a time-sharing terminal with a direct link to a mainframe computer in downtown Seattle. Gates continues, quote, the whole idea of time-sharing only got invented in 1965. Someone was pretty forward-looking, end quote. Bill Joy got an extraordinary early opportunity to learn programming on a time-share system as a freshman in college in 1971. Bill Gates got to do real-time programming as an eighth grader in 1968. From that moment forward, Gates lived in the computer room. He, had, he and a number of others began to teach themselves how to use this strange new device. Buying time on the mainframe computer the ASR was hooked up to was, of course, expensive, even for a wealthy institution like Lakeside. And it wasn't long before the $3,000 put up by the Mother's Club ran out. The parents raised more money. The students spent it. Then a group of programmers at the University of Washington formed an outfit called the Computer Center Corporation, or C-Cubed, which leased computer time to local companies. As luck would have it, one of the founders of the firm, Monique Rona, had a son at Lakeside just a year ahead of Gates. Would the Lakeside Computer Club, Rona wondered, like to test out the company's software programs on the weekends in exchange for free programming time? Absolutely. After school, Gates took the the bus to the C-Cubed offices and programmed long into the evening. C-Cubed eventually went bankrupt, so Gates and his friend began hanging around the computer center at the University of Washington. Before long, they latched onto an outfit called ISI, Information Services or Sciences Incorporated, which agreed to let them have free computer time in exchange for working on a piece of software that could be used to automate company payroll. In one seven-month period in 1971, Gates and his cohorts ran up 1,575 hours of computer time on the ISI mainframe, which averages out to eight hours a day, seven days a week. It was my obsession, Gates says of his early high school years. Quote, I skipped athletics. I went up there at night. We were programming on weekends. It would be a rare week that we wouldn't get 20 or 30 hours in. There was a period when Paul Allen and I got in trouble for stealing a bunch of passwords and crashing the system. We got kicked out. I didn't get to use the computer the whole summer. This was when I was 15 and 16. Then, I found out Paul had found a computer that was free at the University of Washington. They had these machines in the medical center and the physics department. They were on a 24-hour schedule, but with this big slack period, so that between 3 and 6 in the morning, they never scheduled anything. I'd leave at night after my bedtime. I would walk up to the University of Washington from my house, or I'd take the bus. That's why I'm always so generous to the University of Washington, because they let me steal so much computer time, end quote. Years later, Gates's mother said, we always wondered why it was so hard to get him up in the morning. One of the founders of ISI, Bud Pembroke, then got a call from the technology company TRW, which had just signed a contract to set up a computer system at the huge Bonneville Power Station in southern Washington state. TRW desperately needed programmers familiar with the particular software the power station used. In these early days of the computer revolution, programmers that had that kind of specialized experience were hard to find. But Pembroke knew exactly who to call, those high school kids from Lakeside who had been running up thousands of hours of computer time on the ISI mainframe. Gates was now in his senior year, and somehow he managed to convince his teachers to let him decamp for Bonneville under the guise of an independent study project. There he spent the spring writing code, supervised by a man named John Norton, whom Gates says taught him as much about programming as almost anyone he'd ever met. Those five years from eighth grade through the end of high school were Bill Gates's Hamburg, and by any measure, he was presented with even more, with an even more extraordinary series of opportunities than Bill Joy. Opportunity number one was that Gates got sent to Lakeside. How many high schools in the world had access to a timesharing terminal in 1968? Opportunity number two was that the mothers of Lakeside had enough money to pay for the school's computer fees. Number three was that when the money ran out, one of the parents happened to work at C-Cubed which happened to need someone to check its code on the weekends, and which also happened not to care if weekends turned into weeknights. Number four was that Gates just happened to find out about ISI, and ISI just happened to need someone to work on its payroll software. Number five was that Gates happened to live within walking distance of the University of Washington. Number six was that the university happened to have a free computer time between three and six in the morning. Number seven was that TRW happened to call Bud Pembroke, and number eight was that the best programmers Pembroke knew for that particular problem happened to be two high school kids. And number nine was that Lakeside was willing to let those kids spend their spring term miles away, writing code. And what did virtually all of those opportunities have in common? They gave Bill Gates extra time to practice. By the time Gates dropped out of Harvard after his sophomore year to try his hand at his own software company, he'd been programming practically nonstop for seven com- consecutive years. He was way past 10,000 hours. How many teenagers in the world had the kind of experience Gates had? Quote from Gates, if there were 50 in the world, I would be stunned. There was C cubed in the payroll stuff we did, then TRW. All those things came together. I had a better exposure to software development at a young age than I think anyone did in that period of time, and all because of an incredibly lucky series of events. End quote. Section 6. If we put the stories of hockey players and the Beatles and Bill Joy and Bill Gates together, I think we get a more complete picture of the path to success. Joy and Gates and the Beatles are all undeniably talented, Lennon and McCartney had a musical gift of the sort that comes along once in a generation, and Bill Joy, let us not forget, had a mind so quick that he was able to make up a complicated algorithm on the fly that left his professors in awe. That much is obvious. But what truly distinguishes their histories is not their extraordinary talent, but their extraordinary opportunities. The Beatles, for the most random of reasons, got invited to go to Hamburg, Without Hamburg, the Beatles might well have taken a different path. Bill Gates said at the beginning of our interview, quote, I was very lucky, end quote. That doesn't mean he isn't brilliant or an extraordinary entrepreneur. It's just that he, it just means that he understands what incredibly good fortune he had to be at Lakeside in 1968. All the outliers we've looked at so far were the beneficiaries of some kind of unusual opportunity. Lucky breaks don't seem like the exception with software billionaires and rock bands and star athletes. They seem like the rule. Let me give you one final example of the hidden opportunities that outliers benefit from. Suppose we do another version of the calendar analysis we did in the previous chapter with hockey players, only this time looking at birth years, not birth months. To start with, take a close look at the following list of the 75 richest people in human history. The net worth of each person is calculated in current US dollars. As you can see, it includes kings and queens and pharaohs from centuries past, as well as contemporary billionaires such as Warren Buffett and Carlos Slim. Do you know what's interesting about that list of the 17 or sorry, of the 75 names? An astonishing 14 are Americans born within 9 years of each other uh, of one another in the mid 19th century. Think about that for a moment. Historians start with Cleopatra and the pharaohs and comb through every year in human history ever since, looking in every corner of the world for evidence of extraordinary wealth. And almost 20% of the names they end up with come from a single generation in a single country. Here's the list of those Americans and their birth years. What's going on here? The answer becomes obvious if you think about it. In the 1860s and 1870s, the American economy went through perhaps the greatest transformation in its history. This was when the railroads were being built and when Wall Street emerged. It was when the industrial manufacturing started in earnest. It was when all the rules by which the traditional economy had functioned were broken and remade. What this list says is that it really matters how old you were when that transformation happened. If you were born in the late 1940s, you missed it. You were too young to take advantage of the moment. If you were born in the 1820s, you were too old. Your mindset was shaped by the pre-Civil War paradigm. But there was a particular narrow nine-year window that was just perfect for seeing the potential that the future held. All of the 14 men and women on the list above had vision and talent, but they were also given an extraordinary opportunity in the same way that hockey and soccer players born in January, February, and March are given an extraordinary opportunity. Footnote. The sociologist C. Wright Mills made an additional observation about that special cohort from the 1830s. He looked backward, He looked at the backgrounds of the American business elite from the colonial era to the 20th century. In most cases, not surprisingly, he found that business leaders tended to come from privileged backgrounds. The one exception, that 1830s group. That shows how big the advantage was of being born in that decade. It was the only time in American history when those born in modest circumstances had a realistic shot at real riches. He writes, quote, The best time during the history of the United States for the poor boy ambitious for high business success to have been born was around the year 1835. End of footnote, back to the book. Now let's do the same kind of analysis for people like Bill Joy and Bill Gates. If you talk to veterans of Silicon Valley, they'll tell you that the most important date in the history of the personal computer revolution was in January of 1975. That was when the magazine Popular Electronics ran a cover story on an extraordinary machine called the Altair 8800. The Altair cost $397. It was a do-it-yourself contraption that you could assemble at home. The headline on the story read, Project Breakthrough, World's First Mini-Computer Kit to Rival Commercial Models. To the readers of popular electronics, in those days, the bible of the fledgling software in computer world, that headline was a revelation. Computers up to that point had been the massive, expensive mainframes of the sort sitting in the white expanse of the Michigan Computer Center. For years, every hacker and electronics whiz had dreamt of the day when a computer would come along that was small and inexpensive enough for an ordinary person to use and own. That day had finally arrived. If January of 1975 was the dawn of the personal computer age, then who would be in the best position to take advantage of it? The same principles apply here that applied to the era of John Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie. If you, quote, if you were too old in 1975, then you'd already have a job at IBM out of college. And once people started at IBM, they had a real hard time making a transition to the new world, says Nathan Mirvold, who was a top executive at Microsoft for many years. He continues, you had this multi-billion dollar company making mainframes. And if you were part of that, you'd think, why screw around with these little pathetic computers? That was the computer industry to those people, and it had nothing to do with this new revolution. They were blinded by that being the only vision of computing. They made a nice living. It's just that there was no opportunity to become a zillionaire and make an impact on the world." End quote. If you were more than a few years out of college in 1975, then you belonged to the old paradigm. You had just bought a house. You were married. A baby is on the way. You are in no position to give up a good job and a pension for some pie-in-the-sky $397 computer kit. So let's rule out all those born before, say, 1952. At the same time, though, you don't want to be too young. You really want to get in on the ground floor, right in 1975. And you can't do that if you're still in high school. So let's also rule out anyone born after, say, 1958. The perfect age to be in 1975, in other words, is old enough to be a part of the coming revolution, but not so old that you missed it. Ideally, you want to be 20 or 21, which is to say born in 1954 or 1955. There's an easy way to test this theory. Let's look at some of the computer entrepreneurs birth dates. When was Bill Gates born? October of 1955. That's the perfect birth date Gates is the hockey player born on January January 1st. Gates's best friend at Lakeside was Paul Allen. He also hung out in the computer room with Gates and shared those long evenings at ISI and C-Cubed. Paul Allen went on to found Microsoft with Bill Gates. When was he born? January of 1953. The third richest man at Microsoft is the one who has been running the company on a day-to-day basis since 2000 one of the most respected executives in the software world, Steve Ballmer. Ballmer's birth date? March of 1956. Let's not forget a man every bit as famous as Gates, Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple Computers. Unlike Gates, Jobs wasn't from a rich family, and he didn't go to Michigan like Joy. But it doesn't take much investigation of his upbringing to realize that he had his Hamburg too. He grew up in Mountain View, California, just south of San Francisco, which is the absolute epicenter of Silicon Valley. His neighborhood was filled with engineers from Hewlett-Packard, then as now one of the most important electronic firms in the world. As a teenager, he prowled the flea markets of Mountain View, where electronics hobbyists and tinkerers sold spare parts. Jobs came of age breathing the air of the very business he would later dominate. This paragraph from Accidental Millionaire, one of the many Jobs biographies, gives us a sense of how extraordinary his childhood experiences were. Jobs, quote, attended evening talks by Hewlett-Packard scientists. The talks were about the latest advances in electronics, and Jobs, exercising a style that was a trademark of his personality, collared HP engineers and drew additional information from them. Once he even called Bill Hewlett, one of the company's founders, to request parts. Jobs not only received the parts he asked for, he managed to wrangle a summer job. Jobs worked on an assembly line to build computers and was so fascinated that he tried to design his own." Wait a second, Bill Hewlett gave him spare parts? That's on a par with Bill Gates getting unlimited access to a timeshare terminal at age 13. It's as if you were interested in fashion and your neighbor when you were growing up happened to be Giorgio Armani. And when was Jobs born? February of 1955. Another of the pioneers of the software revolution was Eric Schmidt. He ran Novell, one of Silicon Valley's most important software firms, and in 2001, he became the CEO of Google. Birth date? April 1955. I don't mean to suggest, of course, that every software tycoon in Silicon Valley was born in 1955. Some were not just as not every business titan in the U.S. was born in the 1830s. But there are very clearly patterns here, and what's striking is how little we seem to want to acknowledge them. We pretend that success is exclusively a matter of individual merit, but there's nothing in any of the histories we've looked at so far to suggest that things are that simple. These are stories, instead, about people who were given a special opportunity to work really hard, and they seized it, and who happened to come of age at a time when that extraordinary effort was rewarded by the rest of society. Their success was not just of their own making. It was a product of the world in which they grew up. By the way, let's not forget Bill Joy. Had he been just a little bit older, and had he had to face the drudgery of programming with computer cards, he says, he would have studied science. Bill Joy the computer lesson would have been Bill Joy the biologist. And had he come along a few years later, the little window that gave him the chance to write the supporting code for the internet would have closed. Again, Bill Joy the computer legend might well have been Bill Joy, the biologist. When was he born? November of 1954. Joy would go on after his stint at Berkeley to become one of the four founders of Sun Microsystems, one of the oldest and most important of Silicon Valley's software companies, and most important, Yeah. And if you still don't think that accidents of time and place and birth don't matter at all that much, here are the birthdays of the other three founders of Sun Microsystems Scott McNeely, November 1954, Vined Kulsla, January 1955, and Andy Bechtelsheim, September of 1955. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.